Brian Grogan, you're an Irish Jesuit and you've written many books. One of your latest is on uh, Pedro Rupi, the former Father General of the Society of Jesus, who was much loved and suffered much and a controversial figure maybe within hierarchical circles of his time. Give us your take on Father Arupi now that the case for his canonisation is being pushed. So, yes, this month um, of February, the cause for beatification first and that would follow into canonisation if all goes well, was introduced. And so I was asked by the editor of The Messenger, and that's Father Donald Neary, to you know, write something short and popular for people about Arupe. So it so happened that I had been privileged to know him to some degree and was a fan of his and read his writings, which are voluminous. And I I was happy to do that. So that's how the, the little booklet emerged. When did you meet him? Well, I I most significantly met him when when I was asked by him uh, through other people. He had had a stroke in 1981, but he had been asked by the Archbishop of Mogadishu, which happens to be the capital of Somalia, to send somebody to Somalia, which was then bereft of priests because they'd all been thrown out except four of them. Um, by the communist dictatorship in 1974. It was now 1981. And the Archbishop thought it would be a bright idea to see, well, if a priest did come in, what would happen to him? <laughs> <laughs> so yours truly, it so happened, was <laughs> the guinea, guinea pig? pig in regard to this. But Pedro Rupe um, had said, this was, as I say, before he got sick, see if Somalia is a place where the Jesuit refugee service should be um, engaged The refugee service was set up only a year earlier, so it was in its infancy. And the idea behind that was, again, a very Arupe-style thing, that the Jesuits were stuck in the cement, he used to say. His English wasn't always great, but you knew exactly what he meant, that we were stuck in the things we were doing and we couldn't really see how we could get out of them to do anything else. Whereas the original Jesuit ideal was of people who'd be coming and going, doing different things in different continents, etc. But they wouldn't stay there forever. If they managed to sort something out or get something going, then they'd be free to move along. And so with refugees, refugee situations, there are 67 million refugees, I'm told. But with refugee situations breaking out overnight, say, in somewhere in Africa or the situation of the people coming up from Latin America towards the Trump wall and all that kind of thing, people needing help and support There needed to be people around who would go and at least be in solidarity with them. They might know the language even, and they wouldn't be coming there as aid workers, but they'd be there supporting and acting as advocates on their behalf, etc. Anyway, to um, come back to where we were, I was asked to go and I went to Rome. I was waiting on the... um, plane for Mogadishu, which only goes once a week. And um, somebody in Rome said, well, would you like to meet Father General? He's very ill, but he'd be glad to meet you because he's so enthusiastic about this refugee service. Were you enthusiastic about going to Somalia as the guinea pig priest? Well, I didn't know where it was, number one. It would have been the first time that I'd been living on my own in my whole life. I'd never cooked for myself, etc. I was going to be living in a remote city, if you like, in called Hargeisa. And um, you might be either exported or, or, or yes. murdered. 
There were a number of options. You could be um, turned back at the border, at the airport. You could be um, popped into prison. You could be left free to be there, whatever you were thinking of doing. Or you could be killed. Anyway, I went to Arupe and my situation was explained to him by the interpreter. And he sort of came halfway up from the couch on which he was lying and he stuck out a skinny hand and waved it at me and said, Go! (laughs) Well, this was the most dramatic uh, missioning that I'd ever come across. And I did go and... Things were tough in Somalia in many ways, and but they've been tough since. And that single word, go, was a great support to me in dark times. <laughs> so th- that was my most important meeting with him, if you like. But he came to Ireland several times, and so I was rector of Milltown Park, um, and he came along. And so we managed to chat. And I remember asking him, I said, in all truth, how are things going and he was, uh, on the one hand, everything is terrific. He was an optimist. But he says, on the other hand, things are not so good. And he said, um, one of my favorite songs, he says, is Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. <laughs> <laughs> and his problem was that he committed himself totally to the implementation of Vatican II. He wasn't following his own agenda, but the church was moving much more slowly and cautiously. And so there were clashes emerging all the time between the energetic Jesuits who were sort of playing full forward and the conservative bishops who were playing at full back kind of thing. And he really was pushing the Jesuits to go out and get their hands dirty at the margins where people were needed them most. Isn't that right? Yes, he, he was following the call of the church in its own documents, as in the Synod of 1971 about the church in the world. The bishops were saying, well, what is the church meant to be in the world? And they came out of the notion that preaching the faith or trying to get people to become people of faith must be accompanied by working for justice. Because there's so much injustice in the world that faith that doesn't link in with that or mesh with it is irrelevant. It's spiritualized, it's it's meaningless. And people will say, you know, good night. Um, You're the same as Marx who would say, pie in the sky when you die. You've got to be saying, we need to work to transform the structures of the world. We may die in the attempt And uh, Pedro knew what that was like. He himself had been imprisoned by the Japanese um, when he volunteered to go to Japan and during the war um, when the attack on Pearl Harbor had occurred. He was then imprisoned because he was thought to be an American spy. So 36 days in solitary confinement and then days of intense negotiation without a break and all the rest of it. And he was ready for the kind of death that you get in that film called Silence, where people are hung upside down over a cesspool and you slit their throats so that they won't... uh, Their forehead. Their foreheads, yeah, slit their foreheads, um, so that the, the blood won't all go to their head and they die rather immediately. So you enable the drip business to go on and on and on and after a while people can't breathe properly and so anyway he knew all of that 
and so he had to, to face into that. Well, a number of Jesuits, 40 or 50, died in bloody circumstances over the years since we adopted what he wanted us most to do, uh, the project of working for justice in the world while promoting faith. Yeah, the numbers spiked enormously, didn't they, of Jesuits who were dying like in in El Salvador? Salvador would be the the principal one. And so when a few people had been killed in El Salvador, the authorities said, we're going to kill the rest as well. And Arupe checked with all the guys and they all said, we're staying firm. And he told them that, you know, that he told the authorities that you may kill them all, but we should be there. That's what we're meant to be about. And for us just to walk off would be betraying the gospel, which is a very um, dramatic and strong way of putting it. And he himself would have been prepared to go there and be be killed if necessary. Because when he was in Japan, he, they eventually let him out after the war, didn't they? And he wasn't executed, obviously. But he had worked with the victims of um, the, the bomb that fell in Hiroshima. Yes, that right? he, yes he was... After coming out from prison, he became novice director, training young Jesuits. And then they woke up on the 6th of August to this ginormous sound. And they found that when they they were living a tiny bit out from Hiroshima, they saw um, the whole place was in flames. What had happened was the bomb had fallen, but nobody knew then what an atom bomb was, nor did they know the consequences and very simple thing was that the the houses of the people of Hiroshima were made basically of wood and partly paper and that sort of thing. They were all having breakfast. It was around about 8.15 in the morning. And so the flames that emerged from the bomb swept right across the city, burnt the houses down and calcified many people. He went, he and his novices, they knelt down and said, what are we going to do? And that's actually a typical Ignatian phrase. You know, when Ignatius was faced by any particular strange or uh, dramatic occurrence um, or difficult challenge, he'd say, well, what does God want me to do in that situation? And he might have worked out God doesn't want me to do anything or to stay just as I am, or God wants me to get involved and that that line of thinking of Ignatius goes through Arupe and he decides to get involved. And then later in the year 2019, Arturo Sosa, our general, is saying, what ought we do? What is God asking us to do? So it's, it's tremendous dynamism and a driving force um, for us, you know. He was a medical student, so he went with the novices and they attended to the sick. It must have been horrific to have to witness what he witnessed. Yes, a lot of these people had been boiled alive. You know, their skin was missing and many of them died. He brought 150 of them into the Jesuit house. So you imagine a house half this size and he squeezes in all the people that he can take, including children. Um, whose parents had been blown to smithereens and who didn't know the parents, if they were alive, didn't know if their kids had died and all the rest of it. So, yes, he used his desk as an operating theatre and the small amount of medicine that he had, he used it and he saved the lives of a number of people. It was symbolic in a way rather than sort of totally sorting out the problem 
Um, he later went into the city and with the authorities he helped to gather corpses and they burned them then because disease was spreading all over the city. So that, that scarred him for life and he saw what humankind can do and that we need to work in the opposite direction. How do you change the hearts of people so that we'll have no more war, we'll have no more atom bombs, we'll have no more napalm bombing in Vietnam, nothing like that. You know, so you, what can we do? Well, we're a small group at the moment. Like when he came on, there were 36,000 men. Well, they have dwindled down to 16,000. But if we're there, we're meant to be open to engagement with what the real needs of the world are. So, amazing man. How come John Paul II got into <laughs> head-on conflict with him? Now, not okay. if other Ruby didn't engage in it, but tell mm. that story because it is a story. So Pedro Rupe had a sort of mystical devotion to whatever Pope was uh, in charge at the time. So Paul VI, John Paul I, and then John Paul II. John Paul II and himself were very different in temperament. John Paul would be very careful. He'd also keeping an eye on the church in the East, which hadn't had all the freedom that the church in the West had had, and therefore was quite a distance behind. And so he felt that... You can't rush in with all the changes of Vatican II. Whereas Pedro Rupe was reading the documents and saying, you know, these changes must be made, etc. So Pedro's the enthusiast. He, he wasn't a diplomat. He was naive in regard to the way in which Rome worked. Uh, and so he drove the Roman diplomatic service a bit mad. So he came home one evening from a meeting with um, Paul VI. And he said, ah, oh, he said, I had the most marvellous meeting with the Holy Father. And he read me a letter of 12 points in it. And he said, we went down through them. One to 11 was totally approving of what we were doing. And then there were some little changes in the 12th point, <laughs> which we need to make. But they were on different <laughs> wavelengths, totally. <laughs> And so John Paul would demand, you just get rid of that Jesuit if he's proposing something wild like liberation theology. And Pedro would, he couldn't bring himself to do that kind of thing by and large. Only very few were asked to leave. And of course um, you had the liberation theology, which yes. the right-wing critics were saying was Marxist. Sure. And they were saying, well, there's, a, an, a, there's an understanding and an interpretation there, but... It's not, we're not Marxist. And mm. then you had John Paul II who came from yes. the communist regime and I think unwittingly embodied that mentality, even though he was so against yes. it. Mm. And it was a perfect storm. Yes, it was a perfect storm. And eventually relationships between the two of them were fragile. And then uh, Pedro decided I should resign in other words, again, you're back to the Ignatian thing. Well, here we are in this situation, which has never happened before. What ought I do? What does God want me to do? And he gathered in his advisors and they prayed and they thought and they talked and they tried to see, well, what way is God inviting? And Pedro felt he should resign. But John Paul was afraid that if somebody else came on, he might be worse than... <laughs> might be worse than Pedro was from his point of view. So he just delayed. And then the next thing, he had this attempted assassination. So he got sick. And then three months later... The Pope had the attempted yeah, assassination. 
Three months later, Pedro got his stroke from which he never recovered and he just endured the next 10 years in a very incapacitated state. Um, so that left a problem. And then the Pope decided that the only thing to do was for him to appoint a vicar to manage the Jesuits until things could be sorted out. And that, that was a hurtful decision for many Jesuits. Not for all, but f yeah. it was a divisory decision because normally that's not the way the Jesuits sure. would have operated. Yes. Um, it would have been one of Pedro Rupe's own advisors or his council that would have kept the show on the road. But John Paul II picked an older Jesuit, as it happened, in whom he had great trust. And he, in fact, a man called Paolo Dezza, um, he kept the show on the road. And then several years later, um, Pedro was allowed to officially resign and the new man, Peter Hans Goldenbach, was chosen. And in that, am I right in saying also that some Jesuits thought that there might be a schism at that stage? Yes. And pe they were looking to Father Arupi. Explain that. Well, the Jesuits don't, they don't all think the same way. <laughs> People try to think for themselves and work things out. And so it wasn't surprising that in regard to Vatican II, there were Jesuits who felt that these changes were not for the good of the church. And then when they saw Pedro Arupe um, moving along very fast in regard to the worldwide society, they felt that Pedro was destroying the society that they had joined. And men used to say, ah, this is not the society in which I took my vows. And so where do we go? The Spanish Jesuits um, felt this um, in, in quite significant numbers. And they wondered about some kind of a secession or um, a schism or a breakaway grouping who could live the old way of life pre-Vatican II. It wasn't just what Pedro Rupe was doing, but he was trying to implement yeah. the decrees of the of Vatican II in relation to the aggiornamento or the updating of all religious mm -hmm. life. And Pedro took it so seriously. And he became the leader of the various superior generals of the different congregations of Ignatian inspiration. And so they were all working away, but creating trouble for local bishops. It's hard to see how you could have avoided the problem, but the, anyway, Pedro Rupe then put a lot of effort into trying to convince the Spanish Jesuits that God is not calling them to secession and splitting the society, um, that really they are doing the same thing. They're trying to live the Ignatian vision of service of the world, but in a different way. And it might not be wearing collars, but that didn't make any difference. Or they mightn't all be getting up at six in the morning or going to bed at nine at night, that sort of thing. So that was avoided. And just to conclude, he was a deeply spiritual man, wasn't he? I mean, <laughs> it wasn't just about the justice with him. The, the, it was beautifully spiritual. And you might even have one of his prayers there that I think a lot of people love about what gets you up in the morning. I think it's a wonderful yes, um, Pedro, you can see from his face that he was totally won over to God from an early phase. He seems not to have had any great difficulties with faith the way most of us, as they say, can wake up as atheists in the morning until the first cup of coffee and the second <laughs> one sometimes. Um, he, he just radiated Christ. For him, Christ was everything. And 
to be in love with God was a natural mode for him, whereas for the rest of us it can be sort of a struggle. So, um, yes, you asked me about the mm. final. This is attributed to him, and every good reason to believe it was his, where he says, Nothing is more practical than finding God, that is, than falling in love in an absolute final way. So what he's saying there is that Christian living is a love affair, and it changes things when you begin to think about it that way. What you are in love with, what seizes your imagination, will affect everything. In other words, if you've truly fallen in love with God, it'll change the way you live and the kind of people that you try to serve. It'll decide what'll get you out of bed in the mornings, what you'll do with your evenings, how you spend your weekends, what you read, who you know, what breaks your heart. So if you're not in love with God, there's things like the suffering of the poor or the oppressed that doesn't break your heart. If you are in love with God and it's breaking God's heart to see people so deprived of human dignity and all the rest, but then it breaks your heart as well and it changes your way of praying. So he says, and also then um, it'll change what amazes you with love and gratitude. You begin to see God working away in the world trying to undo the evil of the world and you just want to work with him. And so he finishes the whole thing by saying, fall in love, stay in love, and it will decide everything. Best way to end an interview, isn't it? So we look forward to hearing if after his beatification comes mm. the canonization. Yes, thank you very much.